Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 9. If you're using the Bibles and the benches in front of you, you can find uh, that text on page 1,750. Romans chapter 3, verse 9, reading through the end of the chapter. Again, we're reading part of the letter where Paul turns from the first section of his letter to the next section. This is, of course, uh, God's Word, written of the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and our hearts uh, delight to hear it. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. And therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of sin. But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is He not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the uncircumcised by faith and the the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, We uphold the law. So far the reading of God's uh, holy word. Congregation and friends of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, to the Apostle Paul, the gospel is an event. It's something that happened. It had been long prophesied by the Old Testament prophets, even prior to the prophets' existence. It was prophesied by Moses that the gospel event would happen. There would be a Redeemer, the Seed, later the Messiah, the one who would come and establish himself on David's throne and rule forever. He would be the one who would come and who would obey the commandments of God perfectly because the fallen creatures of the human race had not done that and they needed him to come and live a perfect life in their place. They needed that obedience to stand before God and they also needed that same Messiah to die for their sins, to pay the penalty which they owed God in order for them to live. But it wasn't only that, you see. When the Messiah came, He was going to glorify the universe, the universe which had been trapped and locked into its unglorified state, a state of death and constant decay 
and transitoriness. You see, the Messiah was going to bring in the new creation. And when Jesus came, Paul says, that is the gospel. That's the event that has started the change in the universe. Jesus has accomplished redemption and He has, he has ushered in the beginnings of the new creation. And so we who are sitting here today on this side of the cross live at a different time in history than those who came before Jesus, right? The universe the end of the universe, the glorification of the universe has broken in to the present time right now. Of course, in this age, it's not perfected. That's why we as God's people still have sin. We still look around us and see suffering and decay and death. But in the age to come, that will all be gone away. And we know that for certain because Christ was raised from the dead and the power of the end of this age uh, broke in when He was risen. So that gospel event, that coming of Christ and that resurrection of Jesus Christ to save His people, to begin the recreation of the universe, uh, happened, according to Paul. That is what he is uh, proclaiming. And for us who are hearing the message of Paul in the book of Romans, what we have to figure out is how we can get from living in this uh, or what remains of the sinful old age where we uh, see death and decay all around us and we're on the track to death and judgment, how can we get off of that track so that we may be found in the last day when Christ returns to finally glorify the universe in all its fullness? How can we get off the old dead track and onto the track of glorification? I mean, how can it be that we will know for certain that when the age to come finally arrives at the return of Christ, that when He glorifies the universe, which He has already started to do, how do we know that we will be part of the glorified universe instead of continuing to face death and decay and destruction and judgment? How does it happen? How do you go from one kind of existence to the next? That's our question this morning. And the answer is uh, repeated a few times by the Apostle Paul. If you first look in verse uh, 22, well, it happens that a person uh, secures their place in the glorified universe through faith in Jesus Christ, right? To all who believe. It's all who have faith in Jesus Christ. It's all who believe. Verse 26, it happens to those who have faith in Jesus those who have faith in Jesus. Verse 27, it's of faith. Verse 28, man is justified, what? By faith. Since there is only one God, verse 30, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith in Jesus Christ. You see, the answer to the question is you must believe, you must have faith in Jesus Christ. But most people say that they have faith in Jesus Christ, at least in our culture. How do I know that I will be in the glorified universe in the end as opposed to facing the, the terrible wrath of God in the end when He finally judges this dark world? How do I know that I will be in glorification? It's through faith in Jesus Christ. But you have to ask yourself, what does it mean to have faith in Jesus Christ? Now, there will be some who say, I have faith, but they don't say they have particular faith in Jesus. They say, well, I have 
religious faith, meaning I try hard to be a good person. And we know that's not going to work, and we're not going to get into all that again this morning. But there are also some who say that they have faith in Jesus Christ, but if you ask them what that means, they will not be able to tell you. So I want to ask you, do you know what it means to say that you have faith in Jesus Christ? The kind of faith that guarantees that you will stand before God in the judgment at the end time. The kind of faith that guarantees that you will not be locked into the corrupted universe which will be judged uh, finally and fiercely by God in the end, but instead will deliver you and find yourself then in the glorified universe. That is the faith in Jesus Christ that you need. Do you know what that is? And according to the Apostle Paul in in the context of his uh, description of faith, we're just going to look at at two things about what it means to have faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, It says, to all who believe. Believe in what? Two things. First, why you need to be justified. And second, what He did to justify you. First, why you need to be justified. And second, what He did uh, to justify you. You need to understand why you need to be justified. This is what it means to have faith. You need to believe why you need to be justified. Otherwise, you don't have true faith in Jesus Christ. If you don't know, if you don't believe, if you don't confess why you need to be justified, then you are professing a Christ that you know nothing about. So why do you need to be justified? Why do I need to be justified? Why do I need to have faith in Jesus Christ? Verse 9. Shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. Are all under sin. You need to be justified because you are under sin. The term that we can use to describe what it means that we are under sin is that we are totally depraved. We are depraved people. Totally depraved. Now, I want you to think about something for a minute. Obviously, when Paul is writing this letter, uh, he is not writing it for the purpose of answering theological debates that are happening in the 21st century, right? I mean, the Holy Spirit obviously has that in mind, that His Word is true and it will stand throughout the ages. But Paul's not writing a theological textbook uh, per se. His primary concern in explaining and teaching the doctrine of total depravity in this case is what? To make sure that we apply it to ourselves as individuals. So that, you know, it's good to be right, it's good to be uh, reformed and right and say that we believe in total depravity. But of course, the most important thing is that we understand that truth in order that we believe it about ourselves. Okay? And that's the primary reason why we're going to look at this teaching of total depravity. It's to see ourselves in this doctrine. But of course, secondly, it's important in thinking about who we are as a congregation. Remember we said that the book of Romans would be a good place to uh, identify ourselves or to make ourselves distinct based on this book because it summarizes the basic teachings of all of the Scripture. Uh, Another reason why we're going to look at this teaching of total depravity is to understand the difference between what we have confessed about this doctrine and what other people who profess to be Christians say about their own understanding of human depravity. And there's a difference. 
And it's not so much a problem that some people get it wrong and some people get it right, remember. The reason why it's important to get doctrine right in general and total depravity, of course, in particular, the reason why it's important to get that right is because it tells you something about yourself. It's personal. So if someone says, my doctrine is this, such and such, and it's wrong, well, it's bad enough that they're speaking an untruth about God, right? But it's worse that they're believing something about God or about themselves that's wrong. You see, doctrine is very personal. That's why we're going to say it's very important that people believe the doctrine of total depravity for themselves and for those whom they uh, would teach and lead and explain uh, the gospel to. Because you have to know why you need to be justified. If you get that wrong, then you don't have faith in Christ. All right. The doctrine of total depravity. What does it mean? Well, it means three things. The first thing it means is that every man, woman, and child, by nature, is evil and sinful. Every man, woman, and child. Look at verse 9. Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. Verse 10. There is no one righteous, not even one. Verse 11. There is no one who understands. No one who seeks God. Verse 12. All have turned away. Together become worthless. No one who does good. Not even one. Verse 13. Uh, excuse me, verse, skip down to verse 19. Every mouth must be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. When we say that we are totally depraved, that our race, our human race is totally depraved, we mean that every man, woman and child by nature is evil and sinful. It's the first thing that we mean. Now personally to you that means that you believe, no matter how good you are outwardly, that you are by nature totally depraved. Second thing we mean by that is total. Not just every man, woman, and child, but total. Every aspect of every man, woman, and child is sinful. You see that. Verse 13. This is poetic, obviously from the psalm. The throats are open graves. So we got the throat. We got the tongues practicing deceit. We got the poison of vipers on their lips. The throat, the tongues, the lips. Verse 14. The mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Verse 15, the feet are swift to shed blood. Verse 18, there's no fear of God before their eyes. So every aspect of every man, woman, and child by nature is totally depraved. That's what it means. Totally depraved. What else does it mean? It means that every thought, word, and deed of every man, woman, and child by nature is sinful. So every man, woman, and child every aspect of every man, woman, and child from head to toe, and then every thought, word, and deed, everything that comes out of this corrupt humanity is totally depraved by nature. Verse 11, there is no one who understands. You see, every thought, we've looked at this already, the thoughts of the fallen human race are all idolatrous and opposed to God by nature. No one who seeks God, verse 11, they've all turned away from God. There's no one who does any good their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. That means they speak in evil ways uh, for the destruction of others. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, hatred of God and hatred of neighbor. Every thought, word, and action of every creature is sinful. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. You see those actions, violent actions. And not just outwardly violent like... Jesus says, you've heard it said, uh, you shall not murder, but I tell you the truth, if you, basically if you hate your brother in your heart, you're uh, sinning in the same way. Not just outward violence, 
but violence in the heart. Ruin, verse 16, ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. Again, thoughts, words, and actions. There's no fear of God before their eyes, verse 18. This is what it means to be totally depraved. Utterly, utterly wicked. The picture I can give to you of total depravity, and again, this is about you and me by nature, and this is about everybody in our human race, the picture of total depravity is like a sewage pipe that has a clog in it, and it's backed up, and there's so much pressure, and the sewage pipe splits open, and what comes out? Spewing out all kinds of disgusting filth. That's the human race by nature. There is nothing clean and lovely to be found in the sewage pipe that breaks that was under pressure and pours forth all kinds of foulness that you couldn't even imagine. Now, of course, you look around and you say, well, it's not that bad. I mean, people are bad and there's Hitlers and stuff, but you know, a lot of people who don't believe in Jesus do a lot of good things, right? So what, is the Bible wrong? It says, um, no one's righteous, not even one. Verse 12, there is no one who does any good, not even one. Well, think of the sewage pipe for a minute. There's this thing called common grace where God decides out of His mercy so that the human race will not utterly destroy itself in a second because it is so vile and filthy. He kind of puts a filter on it. He puts a stop uh, on it so that not all of the filth which, would, uh, which is gushing out uh, will have the full consequences that it would otherwise have. A God, you see, restrains the evil intentions even of the most uh, wicked men, so that they're not able to do what their heart really desires to do in its fullness. You see, God restrains even unbelievers who are totally depraved uh, from doing the worst which they could do. Uh, the human race outwardly is not as depraved as it could be, but it's not for any desire of the human race uh, that they're not there, you see. It's just God restraining them long enough that He will save His people from their sins until He will return in judgment. Uh, but don't be mistaken, it's very clear from the Scripture that every thought, word, and deed of every man, woman, and child by nature is sinful. And you must believe that about yourself. You see, if you believe that about yourself, then you recognize why you need to be justified. This is what it means to be dead in your sin. Even as Christians, you know that this is true of you. Though you have been made alive and you are no longer, in a sense, totally depraved, you have a new nature which is now willing to do things for the Lord. You still fight the, the uh, habits of the old man, the remnants of the old nature within you. And that is a, a testimony to the fact that you were born by nature totally depraved. And you must uh, believe that what it means to have faith in Jesus Christ first of all is that you believe you are uh, totally depraved let me tell you why we make such a, a stink about this as reformed churches and why we're going to continue to do that and say look if you don't believe in total depravity you've got a serious problem the reason is 
Because if you change this doctrine a little bit, if you say, well, no, I believe mankind is sinful, but, you know, not that bad, not totally depraved. You know, they're still sort of born strong enough to respond to God. You know, they're still, you know, the kind of compromising that people do. For example, Christians who will uh, profess to have faith in Jesus Christ and believe He's the only true God. But, for example, they show romantic interest with those who are unbelievers. Oh, so there's potential for that person, you know. I mean, they're, yeah, they're not really a Christian. You know, they don't say that, but, hey, they're a pretty good person. You know, they're, they're trying. They might be sort of interested. You know, kind of way we try and break down the walls not to think so severely about uh, the bad condition of others who have not turned to Christ. Well, maybe they can respond. You know, they have something good left in them. See, the problem is when you start believing that, you open the floodgates to all kinds of, of perverse ideas about what salvation is. All right? The reason why uh, Reformed churches are so strong to teach total depravity is because we care for the souls of those who are hearing the message. Because if you allow someone to say, not really get it very clearly how sinful they are, then they will not understand uh, why Christ, well, who Christ is and why He came. I mean, what it means to have faith in Christ is, first of all, to know why you need to be justified. If you don't know why you need to be justified, or if you're wrong about that, then you may easily be wrong about what it means to have faith in Jesus Christ. Some, from time to time, become uncomfortable with doctrinal divisions in the church. And if you become comfortable with doctrinal divisions in the church, then, then you've got a problem. We should all be uncomfortable with doctrinal divisions. But the reason we have them, the reason we insist on preaching total depravity, the reason we speak out against those uh, churches, so-called, who will preach a different doctrine than this, is because we care for people's souls. You have to know why you need to be justified according to the Scripture. You have to believe you're this bad or you will not understand or you will not uh, be found to have true faith in Jesus Christ. No one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of sin. We've said it over and over again. We're sinners born into the world, totally depraved. Therefore, we cannot do anything to make ourselves right with God. Everything that comes from us, if it comes before God, will be found to fall, uh, to fall far short. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what it means. Total depravity. You have to believe that about yourself. You also must believe, or asking the question, what does it mean to have faith in Jesus Christ? You also, also must believe what He did then to justify you. What He did to justify you. Now we've said that word a lot, justification, justify. First of all, what does that mean? Justification. What does it mean to be justified? How are we justified? Well, let's use some stories from the Old Testament to help us understand that concept. Uh, let me read from Deuteronomy 25, verse 1. If there's a dispute, an argument, between two men, and they go to court, and the judges decide their case, and they justify the righteous, and they condemn the wicked, then it shall be that if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall then make him lie down and be beaten in his presence with a number of stripes according to his guilt. Okay, what's the picture here? You have two men who have a dispute and they need to go before a judge. They go to court and the judge will decide their case. And what, he, what should he do if he's a good judge? 
he should justify the righteous, right? That means he should look at the case, see what has happened, and make a declaration, right? He shall declare the innocent party not guilty or righteous. And he should do what to the wicked? He should pronounce judgment. He should condemn the wicked. He should declare that the one who is wicked is wicked. Justification is a declaration by a judge. Okay? Proverbs 17.15, God says this, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. So the picture here is of a courtroom where there is someone who is wicked, but the judge, instead of condemning the wicked, does what? Justifies the wicked. Now, does that mean that he made that person do the right things? No, they have already done what is wrong. But the judge justifies the wicked. That means he declares the one who is wicked righteous. And the Lord says that's an abomination. Just like if someone who is not guilty comes in, someone who is righteous, and they get condemned. A declaration of condemnation comes down on them. You are guilty. The Lord hates those. Both of those situations are an abomination to the Lord. Justification, you see, is a declaration by a judge. In Job, you know the book of Job. Job was always interacting with his friends, and his friends finally got fed up. These three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. And the anger of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned against Job. Uh, his anger burned because he justified himself before God. Meaning what? That Job had looked at his life and declared himself just, justified before God. It was a declaration that Job made about himself. All of mankind... Okay, is born into a courtroom, created into the courtroom of God. You have been created into the courtroom of God and you must stand before Him and be justified. You must stand before Him and be declared righteous so that you may stand in the glorification. But the problem is, of course, like we just said, that we are totally depraved. And if we are totally depraved, how can we be declared righteous by the judge? And especially by the judge of whom we're speaking, the Lord, who says, uh, I, it's an abomination to justify the wicked and to condemn the righteous. So if God comes to those who are totally depraved, you and me, and He says, you are justified, you are not guilty, you are righteous, you are holy, then the Lord says, that is an abomination. So how is this going to happen then? If you are born, if you are created into the courtroom of God and you are totally depraved and you will stand before Him and you expect to stand in glorification but you're totally depraved, how can He justify you? Well, the answer there is verse 24, freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement or as a propitiation through faith in His blood. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement. Here's the answer to how God will justify the wicked. 
It's through the propitiation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The sacrifice of atonement. What does that word mean? Now listen, you, you have to know what this word means. This is what it means to have faith in Jesus Christ. If you don't understand this concept, I'm not saying the word. Not everybody knows the words, right? But if you don't understand this and believe uh, in this truth, you do not have faith in Jesus Christ. What does it mean that God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement, as a propitiation in the old language, which was probably better? It means that Jesus, in his death, satisfied the terrible wrath of God against you for your total depravity. God, as we've said from the first part of the letter repeatedly, is terribly angry with sinners. Have you heard the expression, God hates the sin but loves the sinner? Well, Psalm 5 says in the Bible that God hates all those who do evil. He hates all those who do evil. He despises those who practice iniquity. That's what the Scripture says. So don't tell your kids, you know, he hates the sin but loves the sinner. Of course, it's also true in a sense that he loves uh, his enemies. But not in the sense he hates the sin and loves the sinner. No, by, uh, because of who we are by nature, God has a hateful, wrathful disposition toward us because he is holy and he will not tolerate sin. And that, because he is a, a fair God and a righteous judge, that anger must be appeased, you see. He can't just turn the other way. Sometimes we do this in our human relations because we recognize our own fallen sinfulness, so somebody will sin against us, and so we won't require strict justice. Why? Not because we don't think we could get it. Sometimes we might. We may just not want to go through the hassle, and we recognize because of our own fallenness, you know, we can't go through that whole process and you know what, they're going to be gracious to me at some time and I'm just going to have to let it go. But human grace is even different from divine grace because divine grace can't just or will not just say, you know what, whatever, I'll, I'll just have to let it kind of go this time because I care about the person. No, he's holy and he's angry. And what Christ did on the cross was appease the anger of God for us. Jesus did not sort of change God's anger into love when he died on the cross. Nor was it just God showing the world that he was serious about sin. You know, there are people who believe that, by the way. There are people who say that when Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't really him paying our debt. It wasn't really God pouring out his anger for us on Jesus. It was really just that would make God cruel, you know, but it was, instead of that, it was really just kind of God saying, look, now I'm going to forgive you, but you better take it serious. So let me tell you, by the way, why we have to be reformed and we have to summarize the basic teachings of the Bible through our confessions and continue to say that. We have to do that because the preachers in these other traditions, they don't get up in the pulpit and say, oh, by the way, we don't believe this. What we believe is this, this, and this. Even though they do. And then people sort of, without understanding or who don't know any better, sort of get drawn along and the next thing you know, they believe all sorts of crazy things. 
So we are reformed, not because reformed is anything, but because the basic teachings of the Bible are summarized by God's grace in our confessional statements and we hold fast to them because we care about people's souls and don't want them to be led astray to think that what Jesus did on the cross was something else beside what he actually did. Now, we believe in propitiation. We believe that Christ on the cross was a sacrifice of atonement. He bore the burden of the terrible wrath of God that we deserved because of our total depravity on Himself. What it means to have faith in Jesus Christ is that you believe that His sacrifice was for you. That Him taking the terrible anger of God which you deserve, the hatred of God toward you because you are a rebel in His universe. What it means to have faith in Christ is that you trust that blood alone as the only way in which you will stand in the glorification. If you believe that, you have the faith of Jesus Christ of which Paul speaks. If you understand why you need to be justified because you're totally depraved and what Jesus did to justify you, that He bore the terrible anger of God, then you are the one who has believed by the grace of the Spirit. Luke chapter 18, verse 11. The Phar- this story is great. We've been referring to it over and over. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And that word which translated there, be merciful to me, is the same word which Paul is using here. Although, uh, in Luke 18, it's used as a verb. Be merciful to me, uh, the mercy seat. Be propitiated to me. In other words, I know you're angry with me, but would your anger be appeased toward me? I mean, he wouldn't say, have mercy on me if he felt like, you know, God wasn't angry with him and he wasn't at odds with him because of who he was, but he knew who he was. And you know who you are. So when you, have, when you say you have faith in Christ, what you're saying is, I need God's wrath appeased or I will burn under His judgment. Hebrews 2.17 Therefore Christ had to be made like His brothers, that's us, had to be made like us in all things. Why? So that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Why? To make propitiation, to make the sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. Jesus had to become a true man in every way. Why? So that it would be fair that God would pour out His wrath on a true man like us to substitute for us. God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. You see, the cross of Jesus Christ just wasn't a slap on the wrist to the human race so that they learned their lesson to be good. No, it was Christ being made sin. Your sin. Your total depravity. Now let's put some legs on it a minute. This is what I'm talking about. When you woke up this morning all bent out of shape and hatred toward your neighbor. You know. When you go week by week and you, you know, repent from your sins but you do the same thing over and over again. 
You know, when, you, when, you think, when we think we're so holy and yet the thoughts we have in our heart, even about other people in the church, this is all the stuff I'm talking about. This is the depravity which God hates. You know, the excuses that we make for our sins, the self-absorption, our rampant materialism, our refusal to love the Lord and care about the purity of His church and worship as we should instead to bitter and complain, you know, be bitter and to complain. Our refusal to uh, do our work as we ought to do. I mean, all the real sins that even Christians struggle with day by day, the lusts of the mind, of the heart, the pride of life that we have, all of this, you see, Jesus became a man to become that sin so that God would pour out His anger on Him and be appeased toward us. That's what we believe as Christians. That's what it means to have faith in Jesus Christ. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is the basic gospel message that we are totally depraved, but that God put His total depravity on Christ and punished Him, poured out His wrath on Him instead of us, and now He's appeased. And He did that because He loved us. Not that we loved Him, but that He loved us and sent His Son to do that for us. The background, of course, of all this in Paul's thinking, the word sacrifice of atonement or propitiation in verse 25 of Romans 3 is the word that the Greeks used to translate the the mercy seat of the Old Testament in the tabernacle. The place where the priests would go in and slaughter uh, the bull and sprinkle the blood on this mercy seat. Why? To point forward to Christ who was coming to pay the penalty for the sins of his people. Leviticus 16, Aaron shall offer the bull of the sin offering which is for himself, make atonement for himself and for his household. He shall slaughter the bull of the sin offering which is for himself. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat in the tabernacle behind the veil. On the east side, also in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Why did he do this? Well, in the tabernacle, in the mercy seat, behind the veil, was where God manifested his presence. It's where he was with his people, and he could not be with his people if there was not bloodshed, if his people were not cleansed from their sins, because he was a holy God. And you remember what happened if people messed with the worship of God in the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Immediately they were consumed and killed. Why? Because God is holy, and that meant means to point us to today when we, as people who are totally depraved, are in God's universe. If we expect to stand before Him, we need the blood of Christ to have appeased the anger of God for us. The blood of Christ to appease the anger of God for us. So this answers the question, by the way. You see this at the end of verse 26. He did it to demonstrate His justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Remember, how, how is it, if God hates justifying the wicked, if that's an abomination to Him, how can He justify us? Well, He does it because He pours out the judgment that we deserve. He doesn't just set it aside and sort of turn a blind eye. He puts that on Christ. 
So God remains just and fair and also one who justifies us by his grace. Where then is boasting? Verse 27. It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. You see, if you believe that you're totally depraved and you believe that Christ made propitiation for your sin, if God made Christ propitiation, now he's appeased. What are you going to boast about in terms of your salvation? Nothing. You have nothing to boast about. Why? Because everything you are is filth and everything he is is grace and that's the only way you stand. But you could see how some people could kind of get twisted. If they didn't believe in total depravity, they didn't believe in propitiation, atonement, justification, if they didn't believe that, then they'd have some grounds to boast before God. We can't do that. Not according to Paul. If you have true faith in Jesus Christ, you will have no grounds for boasting before him. Verse 29, everybody's saved like this. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too, since there's only one God. What he's saying is, if anyone is to be saved, this is the only way they may be saved. Remember, in the context, he was addressing some of the Jews in the Roman church who were thinking that by their obedience to the law which God had given them exclusively as a people, they would be right before God. And he's saying, no. If that were the case, then there'd be more than one God. But since there's only one God, there's one kind of salvation. And for those saints of the Old Testament who were Jews, uh, he waited patiently with them. He had not yet provided the atonement for their sins, though those who had true faith were looking forward to that. He had not yet provided it. But at the present time, Paul said, in the gospel event, he did and demonstrated that he is just and justifying all those who have faith in Jesus. Uh, what does it mean to have faith? Do you have faith in Jesus Christ? Do you believe you're totally depraved? And do you believe that in spite of your depravity, God had mercy on you by sending Christ to appease his anger for you? If, uh, if you're wondering about that, say, well, I'd like to believe that. I know I'm totally depraved, but I don't know if Jesus died for me. Uh, then you call out what the tax collector called out. And you say, uh, God, be propitiated to me. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Forgive me. I'm wicked. I've got nothing in myself. You're my only hope. That means he's opened your eyes and that he's had mercy and poured out his wrath on Christ for you. People of God, this is on what you must rest, that Christ has paid it all for you and that he needed to do it because by nature you were totally depraved. Hold both of those truths very firmly so that you will stand in the last day. And to that all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, not only for your Son, who out of your great love and his great love was sent to die for our sins, meaning that your anger toward us, which we deserve, was taken away. But we also thank you for his perfect life, which was credited to us, of which we'll hear uh, in the coming weeks from your servant, the Apostle Paul, so that not only are we uh, not guilty, but we are also credited with all the holy works and the good deeds that Christ did for us. So it's a salvation from beginning to end. We thank you for all of that and how we pray for the purity of your church here and around the world, that we would sound forth your truth, uh, not just to be right, uh, not just to sound like we know what we're talking about, uh, but so that we would have great compassion for the lost and for your children whom Christ uh, has died to save. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.